Did you know that 6% of Americans believe that the moon landing was fake? On top of that, 5% of Americans are unsure as to whether or not it actually happened. That means that tomorrow, if you were to walk down the streets of Decatur and you were to ask, hey, do you believe that the moon landing really happened, that Americans walked on the moon, that one out of nine Americans would either say no or we're not really sure if it happened or not. I thought we'd go ahead and settle that for certain right now. Y'all want to go and settle that? Mr. Jim Odom. (laughs) Did Americans truly walk on the moon? There we go. It's settled, right? Is Robin Henderson in the room? I don't know if she's here. Two of the most trustworthy people that we have. These crazy conspiracy theories that people believe that man really didn't walk on the moon, it kind of reminds me of where we are in our passage of Scripture of people in Jesus' day, we're talking particularly about the religious leaders who in spite of the overwhelming evidence, they continue to live in this disbelief that Jesus was who he says he was, that he truly is the Messiah. Even after all that they had seen, After all that they had heard, and we're going to look at that in detail in just a moment, they continue to live in their unbelief. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 10, and we're going to begin in verse 22 in just a moment. But before we pick up in John chapter 10, verse 22, as I do every week, I want to make sure that we're reading this particular passage in context. This passage in John chapter 10, it marks the end of John's writings about Jesus' public ministry. Now, for three years, Jesus has been walking and traveling throughout Israel. He's been proclaiming the gospel. He's been calling on sinners to repent. He's been calling out false prophets. He's been calling out false religions and these religious teachers. He has been instructing his disciples. But he also has performed countless miracles all of which he's doing in order to prove that he truly is the long-awaited Messiah. See, it was through both Jesus' words and his works that he clearly demonstrated that he was the Messiah, that he is God's Son. But just as the Old Testament had prophesied, Just as we knew, if you read the Old Testament, this is the way it would happen. The nation of Israel, led by the religious leaders, they rejected Jesus outright. Think about this. Towards the end of Jesus' life, he only had a handful of genuine followers. We know of 120 that were in Jerusalem, and then the Bible tells us there were several hundred more probably in Galilee. So instead of embracing this long-awaited Messiah, instead of rejoicing that this Messiah that they had longed for for decades and centuries, instead of rejoicing and taking Him in and claiming that He truly is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, what happens? The Israelites, the Jewish nation, they reject Him, and in fact, eventually, they crucify Him. So in this passage that we're going to be reading in just a moment, John continues with this theme 
of the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus as the one true Messiah. So let's look at the first few verses. We begin in John chapter 10, verse 22. It says, At that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Again, looking at this in context, from where we left off the last time we were in John chapter 10 and in verse 21 until where we pick up the beginning of verse 22, most scholars believe that there is a two-month gap between verses 21 and 22. So now it's winter We're walking around uh, Solomon's Colonnade. Most people believe that it's actually close to Christmas Day, December 25th. Um, And during this time, remember in John chapter 10, Jesus made two very bold claims about himself. The first thing he said, he said, I am the door. He's talking about the door of the sheepfold, that he's the only way to gain entrance into God's family is to come through Jesus Christ. And then later in John chapter 10, probably the most famous thing that he says in that chapter, he says that I am the good, what? Shepherd. I'm not a hired hand, but I'm the good shepherd who loves my sheep, and eventually he lays down his life for his sheep. So let's look at a little bit of history here. Because you might look and you say, well, the Feast of Dedication, I don't remember reading about that anywhere in the Old Testament. That's because it's not in the Old Testament. The Feast of Dedication is what we now call Hanukkah. It's the Feast of Lights which commemorates the victory of the Maccabees over their enemies and the rededication of the Holy Temple after it had been desecrated by the Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, during the reign of the Syrian king, he just completely desecrated this holy temple that the Jewish people had spent so much time building exactly as the Lord had commanded. In fact, one of the things they did was they took a pig and they sacrificed it on the altar of the Lord. There were dozens of other sacrifices that they made to pagan gods inside this holy place. Probably the most... um, offensive thing that they did was they actually brought in a statue of the Greek god Zeus and brought him into the most holy place. The Syrian king, he had one hope, and his hope was that he would annihilate, he would extinguish all of the Jewish people. But after three years, under the leadership of a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, the Jewish people retook Jerusalem, and in 164 B.C., They rededicated the temple, and they established the Feast of Dedication. So that's what's going on at this point to where the religious leaders, during this feast, they come to Jesus, they surround Him, and they say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? How long are you going to keep in secret who you are? If you really are the Christ, if you really are the Messiah, come right out now and plainly tell us. Now let's take a deep breath for a second. You need to understand why they want Jesus to say publicly that he's the Messiah. They didn't have a sincere heart here. 
They're not longing to really discover the true identity of Jesus. No, no, no. They want Jesus to publicly say that he's the Messiah because if he says it in the presence of other witnesses, well, then that will be grounds to arrest him because that would be blasphemy that he would be claiming to be God. And if he would commit blasphemy, they can arrest him because their ultimate goal is to get rid of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was the religious leader's greatest threat to power. So their ultimate goal was to get rid of Jesus altogether. Now, understand, up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus has only referred to himself as the Messiah on one other occasion. That other occasion comes from chapter 4 where Jesus is with the Samaritan woman. So for those of us who who know the story of Scripture, we know that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Well, it should cause us to say, now, if Jesus was so clear, if he was blatantly obvious who he is, what his purpose was, then why did he only refer to himself as the Messiah on one other occasion in John's gospel? We have to understand that the Jewish people, they they had a misconception over the purpose of, of the coming of the Messiah. What did they want in the Messiah? They wanted a political leader. They wanted someone who would come in and who would overthrow Rome and would bring them back to what they believed was their rightful place of leadership. Even the religious leaders, this was the type of Messiah that they were looking for. In verse 25, Jesus tells them boldly, that he did share with them exactly who he was over and over again. In fact, he says, for three years I have been telling you, I have been showing you who I am. Jesus had already all throughout John's gospel. He had spoken of how previously he was in heaven with God before God sent him to earth. He said that one day he would return to his father. Not only that, Jesus said over and over again that he had equality with God. He called God his Father. He said that he holds the power to ensure that those who believe in him, he has the ability to grant them eternal life. In your worship guide, I want you to pull out, there's an insert that looks like this. In this worship guide, in this insert, I'm not going to read all of these things, But all of these on the first page and the the half of the back of that page, these are all things, all examples of in the Gospel of John, verses chapters 1 through 10, of things that Jesus has said about himself claiming to be God's Son. He said that Scripture bears witness about him. He says that he had come in the Father's name. Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. Jesus said that his words were spirit and life. Probably the most bold claim that he made was he said, I am. Remember going back to Moses. He had said over and over again, there is no denying exactly who Jesus claimed to be once you read what he said about himself. There should be no confusion. There should be no, well, I'm not really. He made it pretty clear in his words. But he goes even further. He says, you don't have to just look at what I said if you want to see who I am. You can look at my works. The works that I have done, they prove everything that I claim to be. 
Look at the bottom of that. Jesus is proof that he's the Messiah. These are the proofs, the miracles that he made in John chapter 1 through 10. He turned water into wine, his first miracle. He healed a 38-year-old lame man. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. And he healed a man who was blind from birth. Church, the religious leaders, they lacked understanding. But it wasn't because they lacked information. They had plenty of information. Look what we just read. But they lacked repentance. And they lacked faith. Jesus then goes on to tell them why they don't believe in the next few verses. Look with me in verses 26 through 30. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here, once again, we see Jesus interweaving this concept of God being completely sovereign and in control and human responsibility. That he weaves these two together, and we know that they are both 100% true. We believe 100% that God is sovereign, that he is in control, that nothing happens beyond what he can control. But we also know That man is responsible for our choices. We are responsible for the decisions that we make. They both work together. And you've heard me say this before. Maybe it's a cop-out. Maybe it's not. I'm not sure if we'll completely understand how those two fit together until we are face-to-face with him in heaven. But then we see that the religious leaders... Even though they have this high uh, religious uh, experience, they have this high standards, these high religious uh, uh, positions, Jesus says they do not enjoy a relationship with God nor His Son. Even though they studied the Scriptures, even though they taught men and women and children about what God was going to do, they taught about His kingdom, Jesus says they are not a part of of his kingdom. In fact, Jesus says they are outsiders. He says they are not true sheep of the Father. And how do they demonstrate that they're not part of the true flock? Well, they demonstrate it because of their unbelief. On three, def- three different occasions in John chapter 10, Jesus, when talking to the religious leader, says, You do not believe. Jesus says, number one, my sheep listen to my voice. Secondly, I know them. And third, they follow me. Again, Jesus confirmed that those who trust him, they show that they are God's people. So we ask the question, how do we know if we're one of God's children? Most important question that you'll ever answer. Can you have confidence that you know that you are part of God's flock? Well, the answer is, you know that you're one of God's children if you follow the true shepherd. You know that you're one of God's true children if you enjoy a close relationship with Him. Church is God's children. We don't follow some theory. We don't follow some ideology. No, we follow the one who created us and who called us to follow him. 
Jesus, he says that his children, that they know his voice, that they hear his voice. He says that his children will understand his voice. So let's take a deep breath again and let's ask, what does it mean to hear Jesus' voice? If he says if we're part of his flock that we'll hear him, well, what does that exactly mean that I'm going to hear? Because most of us, I would be one of those, I've never heard Jesus audibly speak to me. So what does it mean to hear Jesus' voice? To know Jesus' voice, it means that we continue to learn about his character. We continue not only to learn, but we obey what we read in Scripture and we live as he directs. To know Jesus' voice, listen to me, church, it means that we prefer his voice over all the distractions over all the noise that continue clamors for our attention, and we listen to that still, small voice, and we follow him no matter what the cost. When we, as God's children, when we begin to know, when we begin to understand his voice, then we will move forward in faith. Then we will move forward in trust. And when we do that, we will begin to see that God works from an eternal perspective, and we don't necessarily always look from our earthly, temporary point of view. And to those who believe, He gives the greatest gift that He can ever offer to us, the gift of eternal life. And friends, the opposite is true, too. To those who reject Jesus to those who refuse to believe in Jesus. He says that they will inherit death. They will be given eternal separation from God. So I hope for those of us in this room who have placed our hope in Jesus, for those of us here who have placed our ultimate trust in Jesus, that we will take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows you. He calls you his own, and he promises that he will always protect you. Understand that your security, that your value, that your worth, it's not found in your 401k. It's not found in your physical strength. It's not found in your social status. Your value, your worth is found in the fact that Jesus is your heavenly Father and He promises to have His hand upon your life even when it doesn't make sense. Church, there may not be a more comforting verse in all of Scripture for those who are followers of Jesus than in verse 29. I already read it to you in the ESV. Let me read it to you in a different paraphrase in the message translation that puts it this way. It says, The Father who put them under my care is so much greater than the destroyer and the thief. Remember the thief in John 10.10. No one could ever get them away from him. This is where we develop what many people call the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. The thought is that those that have placed their hope and trust in Jesus, that they will always be secure in the hands of Jesus. Hear me on this. As Baptists, as men and women who, who believe the book, 
We believe in eternal security, not because we have some inflated view of our ability to, uh, to persevere in the Christian life. Let's be honest. If it were left up to us, we'd blow it all up, wouldn't we? We would mess up our ability to try to earn this life to be uh, worthy of being called a follower of Jesus. But Jesus promises right here in verse 29 that he will keep his sheep secure, that no one can snatch them out of the palm of his hands. I don't know about you, but I take comfort in that, that as followers of Jesus, that we are not secure by the strength of our own faith. It's not that I've got to earn, I've got to work my way, but instead we're not, we understand that our security is that we rest firmly in the grip of Jesus. And we see in verse 30 why Jesus has the ability to make this claim, why he is able to make this promise of eternal security. Look what he says in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Verse 30, I believe, is the tipping point for Christianity. I think so many other religions, so many other people that don't follow Jesus, they can get along with a lot of what he says. They're, they're good with some of the teachings. They're good with the way that, that Christians treat other people. They're good with, with all the other miracles and teachings. But when it gets to the point that Jesus claims to be God, well, that's what separates Christianity from every other religion. So what's the religious leader's response to the statement that Jesus ultimately claims to be God in verse 30? Look at verses 31 through 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So they pick up stones, and they're getting ready to kill Jesus. Jesus said, what charge are you going to stone me for? And they say, because you are claiming to be God. Here's the irony here, though. The irony is, it's actually the reverse, which is true. Listen to how John MacArthur puts it. He says, far from being a mere man who was arrogantly promoting himself as God. That's what they're saying. That he's just a man trying to elevate himself to God. Jesus was, in fact, Almighty God who had selflessly humbled Himself in becoming a man to die for the world. The truth was actually the reverse. But Jesus doesn't stop by saying that He and God are one. He then goes on and He presents two arguments. The first thing He does is He appeals to Scripture. Verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, it is, not is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus right here, he's quoting from the book of Psalms. And then he goes on to argue that his miracles again are proof that he truly is who he says he is. Verses 37 through 38. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And he doubles down again. And I am in the Father. Jesus says, guys, look, if you're not going to believe my words, believe my works. The works that some of you have probably seen the miracles that have taken place. 
And I want to take a time out here again for a second, because I know so many times we read the Scripture and we know these stories, and, and we sometimes just kind of gloss over what Jesus is saying. But I want you to, 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 to put yourself in Jesus' shoes for just a minute. This isn't just a story that happened 2,000 years ago, but could you, this would be a scary thought for some of us, if you had the ability to grant eternal life to someone, would you give salvation to someone who is attempting to murder you? That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. These men have stones in their hand ready to murder Jesus. And what does he do? He gives them another opportunity. He shares with them again, this is what it means to have eternal life. You say, well, that's just not fair. Jesus shouldn't do that. How could he give eternal life to those men who are wanting to kill him? Well, be careful. Because remember, all throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that we, before we received the gift of eternal life, that we too were what? Enemies of God. It's all throughout Paul's letters. Just one in particular, Colossians 1.21 this includes you who were once far away from God. Look at this phrase. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Friends, all I can say is thank you, Jesus, that no matter what I've done in my past, that no matter what I've done, no matter how far I've been separated from you, that you can redeem me, that you can take an enemy of God, you can adopt us, and you can, be, you can call us a child of his. If that doesn't give you grace, if that doesn't give you hope for today, I don't know what will. And how do they respond to Jesus' arguments? Last verse we're going to look at today, verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. So after Jesus' forceful, quite honestly, his stunning claim that he makes that he is God, what do they do? Once again, they try to arrest him. But understand, now for the second time in this passage, Jesus escaped them. How did he do it? Well, because there was no way that anyone was going to lay a hand upon him until his appointed time had come that his father had already determined. So as we close this morning, as we conclude what's been four weeks in John chapter 10, a chapter that I believe is one of the most revealing chapters about Jesus' identity, about our relationship as believers with Jesus. I want to step back and I want us to see exactly what Jesus teaches us from John chapter 10. I hope that as a follower of Jesus, that these assurances that I'm about to share with you will give you incredible comfort. Let me just list some of these. In chapter, all from chapter 10, in verse 7, Jesus says that I am the door to the sheepfold. He says, I am the one and only way to enter into God's family. It's through me. In verse 10, Jesus says that he came to give us abundant life. And by the way, that abundant life doesn't just begin when we die and we enter into his presence. That abundant life begins here on earth. In verse 11, Jesus says that he's the good shepherd, that Jesus loves and he cares for his sheep, that he protects his sheep. Verse 14, Jesus says that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. 
as the good shepherd, not just a hired hand. He knows his sheep intimately. And here's the best part, friends. He even loves them in spite of their flaws. He doesn't push them away, but he loves them so much that in verse 15, he says that he lays down his life for his sheep. That doesn't make sense. A shepherd to lay down his life for his sheep. This is the ultimate love that he would lay down his life for his children. Verse 27, Jesus' sheep know and follow him. He says that his children know his voice. They hear his voice. They hear the word of God, but it doesn't stop just by hearing it, but then they follow through in obedience. Verse 29, he says that our eternity as Jesus' sheep, that it is secure. He says there's no one, there's no power that is able to snatch God's children out of his hand. And then in verse 30, Jesus says, I am God. Friends, to know Jesus is to know God. If this doesn't give you hope, if this doesn't give you the opportunity to see your world through an eternal perspective, not from a temporary perspective, I'm not sure that you can find any hope outside of John chapter 10. I hope that you'll take confidence in these eight assurances that Jesus gives that if you are a child of God, listen to me, that you can take hold of the promise that has been given to you, that you will embrace this abundant life that hasn't just been given to you, it has been purchased for you. And when you embrace this abundant life that has been purchased on your behalf, that you will make the choice that I'm going to listen to him and I am going to daily choose to follow him. And if you're here this morning and you say, well, you know what? I, I think I'm a child of God. I, I'm trying to follow him, but I just don't hear his voice. I'm not sure. What does it mean? How am I going to get to a point where I can hear God speaking to me? Try this this week. This week, I want you to sincerely go before the Lord in prayer and ask him to make his voice so abundantly clear to you that it drowns out all the other distracting voices. God, I want to hear from you so clearly that it drowns out all the distractions, all the other noise that I have going on in my life. And then seek him with all of your heart. Pursue him this week with everything that you have. Jeremiah says, if you seek me, you will find me if you what? Seek me with all your heart. If you want to hear the voice of your shepherd, then we must desire him more than we desire sin in our life. That the holiness of God, pursuing his will for our life, it is more appealing than any distraction, any sin that so easily entangles us. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer, that each and every day that we would learn to walk in fellowship with you, 
That we would not simply rely on our past victories or the past times that we've seen you move. That we do not continually pursue you. We do not continually tune our hearts back to you. So Lord, I pray that this week that your voice would speak so clearly to us. That it would drown out the distractions that are in front of us. There are so many things that are vying for our attention, for our focus, that it is so easy for us to put our relationship with you on the back burner. But I pray this week that as we pursue you, as we seek you, that we would find you. And Lord, that we would say even now, Lord, whatever you say, Wherever you call us to go, whatever sacrifices you make us, ask us to make, the answer is yes. We will follow you. There's nothing greater that we could ever pursue in our life than to walk ever closer to you. And Lord, if there's someone here today that has never experienced what it feels like, what it means to be a part of your flock, I pray that today they would find a Savior who is waiting and willing to accept them into your family. That they would confess their sin. They would repent of their sin and they would call upon you as the one and only way to the Father. We love you, Jesus. And we pray all of this in your name.